Welcome to today's reading of Council Plus Non for January 8th, 2024. I'm your reader, John McPartland, and here's our first story. GOP hopefuls blitz Iowa a week before caucuses. On the penultimate weekend before the first in the nation Iowa Republican caucuses, and on the three-year anniversary of the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, former President Donald Trump, whose false claims of election fraud inspired those attacks on the Capitol, campaigned in Iowa as the frontrunners of the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Trump's fellow Republican candidates, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and Ohio biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy also campaigned across the state this weekend with the hopes of forging an 11th-hour surge that would close the significant polling gap between themselves and Trump. The busy weekend of campaigning gave Iowa Republicans one more healthy dose of the candidates' pitches before the January 15th caucuses. At a campaign event on the Des Moines Area Community College campus in Newton, and on the anniversary of the insurrection that resulted in $2.7 million in damage to the U.S. Capitol and led to the deaths of at least two people, Trump continued to make disapproved claims of election fraud and referred to the January 6 rioters as hostages. By contrast, Trump referred to an increase in migrant crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border as an insurrection, while suggesting that January 6 rioters acted peacefully and patriotically. In a wide-ranging two-hour speech, Trump rarely was on script as he mused about Joe Biden, the Civil War, his primary opponents, and his four criminal indictments. Trump is leading uh, by more than 30 points, as the deluge of ads and campaign rallies from DeSantis and Haley have done little to eat into his support. But cautious of repeating mistakes from 2016, Trump's campaign is making a concerted effort to let his rally attendants know how, when, and where to caucus in the final days before the contest. Jason Hosbrook and Josh Barrett, both of Maxwell, are the kind of voters Trump's Commit to Caucus events are designed to turn out. Both are enthusiastic about Trump, but neither Hasbrook, who is 46 years old, nor Barrett, who is 47, has participated in a Republican caucus before, and they know little about how caucuses work. Before the Newton event, Hasbrook said he doesn't know if he's going to caucus, but that if he learned more at the event, he might consider it. He and Barrett said they think Trump has the backing of Iowa Republicans. I've worked my whole life. I have no idea what the caucuses are, and I've lived here my entire life, he said. Conscious of a segment of voters in the same boat, the Trump campaign has littered its events with pamphlets and signage explaining how a caucus works and where attendees can find their caucus location. In Newton, the campaign played an animated video that took viewers through the steps needed to participate at the caucuses. Trump, too, made sure to encourage caucus participation multiple times during his two-hour remarks in Newton on Saturday. You've got to get out and vote, he told the crowd. And if you do, you'll see numbers, as big as the numbers that are being projected, 
you'll see numbers bigger than that. While most of his fire was focused on Biden and Newton, Trump occasionally skewered his Republican primary opponents, saying they were unelectable, beholden to special interests, and would get the U.S. mired in war. Ron DeSanctimonious, Nikki Haley, and the rest of the pack will never do what it takes to secure the border because they're owned by big money, Wall Street establishment donors, he said. Now, Ron's lost most of them because he's failed. You need a little personality to do this stuff. It helps to have a little personality. Ron DeSantis is at events in Cedar Rapids, Davenport, and Ankeny. DeSantis continued to tout his strong record of delivering conservative results as governor of Florida. I'm the only one running who has a record of delivering on 100% of my promises, DeSantis said during brief remarks to a packed crowd of more than uh, 200 people at a Cedar Rapids diner. That list, according to DeSantis, includes lowering taxes while maintaining budget surpluses used to pay off the state debt, signing into law parental rights, um, and school choice measures that prohibit Florida schools from teaching about gender identity or sexual orientation in elementary school, and banning diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at Florida's public universities. Donald Trump is running for his issues. Nikki Haley's running for her donors' issues. I'm running for your issues and your family issues and to turn this country around, DeSantis said, using what has become a common line in his campaign stump speech. In Ankeny, DeSantis expanded on that during an interview with the Gazette just before an event at a local restaurant. I mean, Trump bragged about that when people think of his candidacy, they think of his idea of retribution. But that is more personal to him rather than dealing with the issues that are really affecting people in a really big way, DeSantis told the Gazette. And unfortunately, there are issues that are front and center now that Trump promised to fix and didn't fix, DeSantis added, alleging Trump failed to complete a security wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, did not deport enough people who migrated into the U.S. illegally, and failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act federal health care law, which requires an act of Congress, and failed to drain the swamp using a phrase Trump often employed during his 2016 campaign. Talk is cheap. The slogans during political rallies, all that stuff, it doesn't matter unless you actually deliver it, DeSantis said. So people can have confidence in me. When I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to follow through on it. In Davenport, DeSantis asked by a member of the crowd if he became president how he would handle January 6th rioters. DeSantis did not talk specifics, but said he would end the weaponization of federal power. We are going to hold people in those agencies accountable, and when people, if they abuse their power, when I'm president, I'm firing these people, DeSantis said. Another person asked how DeSantis, how he would handle the epidemic of gun violence in the U.S., and DeSantis mentioned the school shooting last week in Perry, in which a sixth grader was killed and seven other students and staff were injured. Schools need to be safe, DeSantis said. The shooter here, it seems like he had some mental health issues. 
and clearly was not even an adult. So in terms of the firearm, I know that they left and Biden, I know that the left and Biden are all about rolling out their agenda against firearms, but he was not legally allowed to have this. So I don't know how it happened. Nikki Haley, with just a week before the Iowa caucuses, Haley said she knows what Iowans are looking forward to the most. You ready for the commercials to go away, she said, getting laughs and nodding heads at Field Day Brewing in North Liberty. Haley spoke briefly to more than 200 people at the brewery and restaurant, where she was introduced by New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununi. We have done over 150 town halls in this race, and we have answered every question, shaken every hand, Haley said. But now's the time you say, what do I get if this happens? If elected president, Haley said, she will, among other things, balance the budget, claw back unspent COVID-19 relief money, eliminate gas and diesel taxes, make sure K-12 schools have vocational programming, keep trans women from competing in sports against other women, stop trading with China unless the country can cut off the flow of fentanyl to the U.S. and support the renewable fuel standard. The former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor got boisterous approval when she said the U.S. should impose term limits on its elected officials and said the U.S. can't survive four more years of chaos if Trump is elected. But other lines of her stump speech that might be popular elsewhere passed without a clap in North Liberty, which is part of the Democratic stronghold of Johnson County. We will go back to the Romaine Remain in Mexico policy and never let anyone set foot on U.S. soil that we haven't processed and instead of catch and release, we'll go to catch and deport, she said. Haley held up a form asking Iowans to commit to caucus for her on January 15th. Don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't play in this caucus, she said. Jessica Klein of Tiffin plans to caucus for Haley, but was hoping the candidate would address the Perry School shooting. As a mom of four, it's important that candidates address that it's becoming an increasing problem for our country, she said. I do hope any candidate will take on smarter approach to gun management. Not necessarily uh, banning guns, but manage access to them. Haley did not talk about firearms in her speech, nor did she say she supported gun control, when Klein asked her about it afterward. Instead, the candidate talked about the need to improve mental health care. Later on Saturday, Haley visited a Bettendorf restaurant and bar, the Tangled Wood, where she kept to a brief stump speech and took photos with attendees. Xania Muka, 68, of LeClaire, said she appreciates Haley's stance on continuing support for Ukraine. Mucha's parents came to the U.S. from Ukraine, and her now 94-year-old mother is watching war again in her home country. It's a democracy that's struggling to survive, that is relying on allies for support, Muka said. If we don't, it doesn't stand a chance of survival. That's not what we should be doing to our allies. Muka said she plans to caucus for Haley on January 15th, but is sure that if Trump captures the nomination and he faces Biden, she'll pick the Democrat. Vivek Ramaswamy, addressing a few dozen people Saturday morning at the Quad City Veterans Outreach Center in Davenport, 
Ramaswamy pitched himself as an outsider business owner running to finish Trump's work. Ramaswamy also told the audience he would pardon every peaceful January 6th protester on his first day in office. More than 1,200 people have been charged with federal crimes in the riot, from misdemeanor offenses like trespassing to felonies such as assault. About 170 people have been convicted in a trial. More than 700 people pleaded guilty, and two have been acquitted. More than 720 people have received sentences, more than half of which included incarceration. Ramaswamy later told a reporter he would decide on a case-by-case basis and would pardon anyone not charged with a violent crime. Ramaswamy also said veterans deserve better care than what the U.S. currently shows them. He said veterans should have medical choice, including access to psychedelics such as uh, ayahuasca, ketamine, or cyclobin for medical purposes. That's spicy for the Republican Party, Ramaswamy said. I don't care. That's the truth of what we actually stand for. Ramaswamy said he also supports a six-week paid decompression buffer for people who have returned from combat roles before re-entering the civilian workforce, making active duty military pay or veteran benefits exempt from federal taxes, and that veterans shouldn't have to drive long distances to access covered medical care at a VA location. Ramaswamy pledged to cut the federal workforce by 75% and add term limits for civilian workers and any anti-carbon restriction, stop spending on foreign wars, and use the resources instead to fortify the country's southern border, put in place stricter lobbying laws, and pass term limits for members of Congress. To get term limits, though, Ramaswamy said he would allow current members of Congress to be grandfathered in, so the next person to hold their seat would be subject to term limits and lobbying restrictions. Jeffrey Baker, 40, of Clinton, said he's trying to decide between Ramaswamy and Trump. Baker planned to attend appearances later Saturday by Ron DeSantis in Davenport and Trump in Clinton. He, Ramaswamy, has a fresh perspective, Baker said. Baker said cutting the federal workforce and fluff in the system is important to him, and Ramaswamy seems to have a plan to make his vision a reality. Marlene Negus, 74, of Davenport, said she initially planned to caucus for DeSantis, but thinks she has changed her mind the more she hears of Ramaswamy. I think we need a business owner to run this country, Negus said, kind of like Trump. Trump couldn't be bought. That's the type of person we need. Negus said she thinks the former president would be too distracted to be able to get much done in another term, but that she would vote for Trump if he's the nominee. Fox News to host trio of town halls with hopefuls. A trio of Fox News town halls with presidential candidates in Des Moines this week will dig into the issues that are motivating American voters for the 2024 election, especially when it comes to women. Fox News' Martha McCallum said in an interview with Lee Enterprises that the network will host town hall events with Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley just days before Iowa Republican heads to the caucuses and kick off the presidential nomination process. 
The town halls will be moderated by McCollum, executive editor and anchor, an executive editor and anchor of the story, and Brett Bauer, the chief political anchor for Special Report. The Haley Town Hall will be held at 5 p.m. Monday. The DeSantis Town Hall will be held at 5 p.m. Tuesday. And Trump Town Hall will be held at 8 p.m. Wednesday. The Trump Town Hall will take place at the same time as CNN's scheduled debate between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, also in Des Moines. The DeSantis and Haley town halls are billed by Fox News as being focused on women's issues. McCollum said the town halls will broadly cover the issues that women, especially suburban women, care about. She said suburban women have been a decisive voting population in the past. And uh, how they vote in 2024 will be a key factor in the outcome. For most people, issues are issues, whether you're a man or a woman, she said. And a lot of these issues go across the board. But because it's such an interesting group to watch an election night, I hope that within these town halls we're going to get a sense from the women in the room about where they are on all of this. The town halls will be held in front of a live audience, and much of the time is planned to be dedicated to questions from the audience. The network will select from questions the audience submits to pre present to the candidates, McCollum said. The issues McCollum said she expects to cover in the town halls include the economy, the border, crime, and abortion. DeSantis, Haley, and Trump have participated in a number of town halls and televised media events to the caucus campaigns held by major cable news networks. CNN held back-to-back -back town halls with DeSantis and Haley on Thursday. What's different this time, McCollum said, is the level of attention voters are paying to the presidential primary with just a few days left until the caucuses. I think the difference now is that we're so close, McCollum said, and that people have had opportunities to listen to these candidates. I think also all of them are sharpening their games in recent weeks which I think is very interesting to watch. Bauer occasionally clashed with Trump in a June interview when the former president defended withholding classified documents after leaving the presidency and repeated unfounded claims of fraud in the 2020 election. McCollum said she hopes the town hall does not get too eaten up by Trump's false election claims or multiple criminal indictments. She said Republican voters generally are less interested in those issues compared to issues like the economy and the border. I'm sure that we'll touch on some of those issues, but I hope we spend the majority of the time talking about the things that we know voters care about the most. And here's a story on federal government spending. Leaders announce deal. House Speaker lauds agreement that could help avoid shutdown. Congressional leaders have reached an agreement on overall spending levels for the current fiscal year that would help avoid a partial government shutdown later this month. The agreement largely hews to spending caps for defense and domestic programs that Congress set as part of a bill to suspend the debt limit until 2025. But it does provide some concessions to House Republicans who viewed the spending restrictions in that agreement as insufficient. In a letter to colleagues, House Speaker Mike Johnson said Sunday the agreement would secure $16 billion 
and additional spending cuts from the previous agreement brokered by then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden, and is about $30 billion less than what the Senate was considering. This represents the most favorable budget agreement Republicans have achieved in over a decade, Johnson writes. The most conservative House Republicans opposed the earlier debt ceiling agreement and even brought House proceedings to a halt for a few days to show their displeasure. Many were surely wanting additional concessions, but Democrats have insisted on abiding by debt ceiling spending caps, leaving Johnson in a difficult spot. Biden said the agreement moves us one step closer to preventing a needless government shutdown and and protecting the important national priorities. It reflects the funding levels that I negotiated with both parties and signed into law last spring, Biden said in a statement. It rejects deep cuts to programs hardworking families count on and provides a path to passing full-year funding bills that deliver for the American people are free from any extreme policies. The agreement speeds up the roughly $20 billion in cuts already agreed to for the Internal Revenue Service and resends about $6 billion in COVID relief money that had been approved but not yet spent, according to Johnson's letter. Lawmakers needed an agreement on overall spending levels so that the appropriations could write the bills that set line-by-line funding for agencies. Money is set to lapse January 19th for some agencies and February 2nd for others. The agreement is separate from the negotiations that are taking place to secure more money for Israel and Ukraine, while also curbing restrictions on asylum claims at the U.S. border. In a joint statement, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries also voice their support for the agreement. It will also allow us to keep the investments for hardworking American families secured by the legislative achievements of President Biden and Congressional Democrats, Schumer and Jeffries said. Finally, we have made it clear to Speaker Mike Johnson that Democrats will not support including poison pill policy changes in any of the 12 appropriation bills put before Congress. Winter storms slam both coasts. Warnings, watches cover northeast, many in California without power. A major winter storm bringing heavy snow and freezing rain to some communities spread across New England on Sunday, sending residents scurrying for their shovels and snowblowers to clear sidewalks and driveways. Winter storm warnings and watches were in effect throughout the northeast and icy roads made for hazardous travel as far south as North Carolina. The northeast snow came as a Sierra Nevada storm packing heavy snow shut down a stretch of interstate Saturday and briefly knocked out power to tens of thousands in Reno, Nevada. More than 11,000 electric customers in California were without power Sunday afternoon. Some communities in Massachusetts had recorded more than a foot of snow by Sunday afternoon, according to the National Weather Service. Nearly 13,000 electric customers in the state were without power Sunday afternoon. Hundreds of flights at Logan International Airport were delayed or canceled Sunday, according to a tracking website, Flight Aware. Snow totals were lower for coastal communities, with Boston reporting just a few inches.
Snow was expected to continue throughout the day. The storm reached into Maine with snow totals of up to 12 inches in some places, with locally higher amounts over southern New Hampshire and southwestern Maine. Wind gusts up to 35 miles per hour could add to blowing and drifting snow. Moderate to heavy snow was expected to continue in Vermont with total accumulations of 6 to 12 inches. Major winter storm conditions were expected into Sunday evening, including snow in parts of New England and rain and freezing rain around the central Appalachian Mountains. In the west, a winter storm warning was in effect through Saturday night in the Sierra Nevada from south to Yosemite National Park to north of Reno, where the Weather Service said as much as 20 inches of snow could fall into the mountains around Lake, Lake Tahoe, with winds gusting up to 100 miles an hour. The California Highway Patrol said numerous spinouts and collisions forced an hours-long closure of Interstate 80 from west of Truckee, California to the state line west of Reno. The Weather Service said that system would continue to unleash heavy mountain snow and coastal rain overnight before moving into central and southern California, then off to the southwest and the southern Rockies. The East Coast system was expected to track along the Northeast Coast throughout the weekend. While warnings were being canceled and highway reduced speed limits and other restrictions were lifted Sunday, motorists were being cautioned about the hazards of spotty freezing rains and black ice in southeast Pennsylvania and northern New Jersey. In Massachusetts and parts of Rhode Island, the National Weather Service declared a winter storm warning from 4 p.m. Saturday through 1 a.m. Monday with snow accumulations of between 6 and 12 inches and winds gusting to 35 miles per hour. Forecasters also warned of another northeast storm Tuesday into Wednesday. Now we have an opinion by Douglas Burns. What Harkin would do if he were running in 2024? Tom Harkin still has it, the pulse of Iowa on auto diet and a force of moral clarity, that defining doggedness, and aw shucks ease with voters, and a rhetorical sledgehammer ever ready when he needs it. He's also fast on the draw with a prescription for Democrats in Iowa in 2024. It's discipline of message, the former Democratic senator told me in an interview recently in Council Plus. If I were running for the legislature in Iowa, there are only three issues I'd run at, run on, no matter what part of the state I was in, Harkin said. First, no public tax money for religious schools, period. The second issue I would campaign on, government should not be able to take your private property for private company, period. And the third issue would be reproductive freedom for women. I'd just do those three issues. I wouldn't talk about anything else. The boost to private schools through vouchers, education, savings accounts will come at an expense to the public schools, many Democrats and others argue, and the threat to property rights with pipeline proposals and the rollback of women's rights on abortion also leave Republicans vulnerable, Harkin said. Simply put, Democrats should be focusing on economic messages more than cultural issues, he said, adding that Democrats also need to get back to the shoe-leather approach, face-to-face -face work with voters. We Democrats have 
to get every one of our voters out, Harkin said. We have to double down on door knocking. We have to do better at making sure our voters are registered. There are big challenges looming for Democrats in the next year. Politics are nationalized in the modern era, and more than a third of Democrats themselves don't want to see President Joe Biden run for re-election in 2024. Harkin has a response for that. I would use Joe Biden's favorite phrase, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, Harkin said. You ask about Joe Biden and they think, oh, there's got to be somebody better and younger and all that kind of stuff. But when it gets down to Biden and Trump, all those Democrats are coming home. And I think a fair amount of Republicans who could just not abide by Trump being president again and then really taking over the Republican Party lock, stock, and barrel. There are enough moderate Republicans out there who still don't want that to happen. Harkin, 84, is a native of Cumming, Iowa, who graduated from Iowa State University and first ran for Congress in 1972, winning election in 1974, and he became involved, came of age, he said, in Iowa politics in the 1950s. The Democrats in the Iowa legislature in the 1950s always joked that they could caucus in a phone booth, Harkin said, but then we just worked hard and we started electing a few people that became good leaders, so we came up. These things kind of have a wave, Harkin said, and I would say right now there's a lot of turbulence politically and people are upset and they don't know which way to go right now, so a lot of people gravitate toward a Trump for various reasons. Recent elections have shown working-class, non-college, educated voters fleeing the Democratic Party. Well, bring them back home, Harkin said. I don't think we have done a good job of responding to the base. We drifted off under Bill Clinton and maybe Barack Obama those years of appealing only to the educated class in America. What we forgot was our base was getting disseminated and we didn't do things necessary to keep their wages and income up where it should have been. For probably 30-some years, our base kept losing ground, and we wondered why they left us. We never responded to them. I, at, the end of, I, at, the end of the, at the end of the interview, I asked Harkin if he ever planned to write a memoir about his 40 years of service in the U.S. House and Senate and his 1992 presidential run. He left office a decade ago. Don't expect one, Harkin said. Oh, I've thought about it. I just never got around to it, Harkin said. But you know, I don't know a lot of these memoirs written by congressmen and senators, you know. They really aren't worth very much. I'd rather put my effort into the Harkin Institute. The nonpartisan Tom and Ruth Harkin Institute is located in Des Moines on the Drake University campus. It assists in developing policies based on facts, data, he said. I'm hoping the Institute will act as kind of a thing that maybe can even get the Republican Party back to a more moderate stance, Harkin said. You are listening to the Council Bless Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, John McPartland. If you have any questions on this or any other IRIS programs, give us a call at 
243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Roberta Clark, June 26, 1925, January 2, 2024. Roberta Marie Harold Clark, age 98, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, passed away January 2, 2024, at Prairie Gate Care Center. She was born June 26, 1925, to Stanley and Ruth Darnell Harold in Council Bluffs, Iowa. She worked hard during the war and was a loving wife, mother, homemaker, and loving grandma and great-grandma. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by her husband, Virgil, sisters Emma Stephan and Lorraine Bockard. Roberta is survived by her children, Ruth Ann Lloyd Etherington of Council of Iowa, David Wanda Clark of Santa Maria, California, grandchildren Christy Etherington, Robert Etherington, Jolene Christopher Smith, Cora Ruth, Brandon Clark, Jessica Billingsley, Jennifer Baumgartner, seven great-grandchildren, sisters Jacqueline Clark and Joyce Harold, both of Council Plus, Iowa, many nieces and nephews, and a host of other family and friends. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Hoy Kanoski Funeral Home on Monday, January 8, 2024. Visitation will be held an hour prior to the service, the family will direct memorials. Final resting place, Cedar Lawns Cemetery. Cynthia Jean Lang, January 17, 1951, December 19, 2023. Cynthia Jean Lang, aged 72 years, passed away December 19, 2023 in Omaha, Nebraska. Cindy was born January 17, 1951, in Red Oak, Iowa, to Jean and Marilyn Lang. She graduated from Trainer High School in 1969 and then graduated from Metropolitan Community College in, in Omaha. Cindy was a longtime secretary for the Field Pager Company of Omaha. Memorial Service, January 13, 2024, at 11 a.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Mile Woodring. Bayless Park Chapel. Visitation starting one hour prior to the service. Luncheon to follow service at the funeral home. Charlene Brickerhoff, 71, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, formerly Nebraska City, passed away January 1st, 2024, at her home. Charlene worked over 30 years for the former Lincoln Telephone and Telegraph Company. She is survived by sisters Kathy Pierce in Nebraska City, Kayla Wallers, Council Plus Iowa, nieces, nephews, grandnieces, and nephews, great great nieces and nephews, other family and friends. Funeral services will be Monday, January 8th, 2 p.m. at Good Mortuary, Nebraska City. Um, in inurnment at a later date in Wayaka Cemetery, Nebraska City. Family will greet friends from 1 to 2 p.m. Monday at the mortuary. Now we have a story, Bellevue Downs, another casino. 
A report commissioned by the Nebraska Racing and Gaming Commission is discouraging regulators from allowing more casinos in the state. The data do not support the addition of more racing licenses, according to the report issued last month by the Innovation Group of New Orleans. The report finds that there is more than sufficient capacity with the state's existing six racing licenses to allow for tripling or quadrupling of racing in Nebraska. Several new horse racing tracks are proposed in Nebraska, which would be allowed to offer casino gambling under a ballot initiative approved by Nebraska voters in 2020. Nebraska's six existing um, racetracks have 53 race days in 2022, according to the report. Bonner Park in Grand Island is the only track that offers a full racing schedule with 42 racing days in 2023. Only those six existing racings, racing license holders are allowed to operate casinos in Nebraska, and new racetracks have been proposed in Bellevue, Norfolk, York, North Platte, Gearing, and Kimball. Another proposal would move the Hastings racetracks to Ogallala. The report's findings could chill efforts to license these new racetracks, including the Bellevue proposal, which would compete with casinos in Omaha, Lincoln, and southwest Iowa. The proposed Bellevue racetrack casino, located across the U.S. Highway 34 bridge from Glenwood at the interchange with U.S. Highway 75, would boost the projected overall gambling revenue in the state. However, it would also cut into the revenue of existing Nebraska racetrack casinos. Hardest hit would be the War Horses Casino under construction at Horseman's Park in Omaha, according to the report. Lance Morgan, CEO of Ho-Chunk, Inc., the parent company of War Horse, said state law prohibits approving new racetrack casinos if they will have a detrimental impact on the existing market. This study kills Bellevue, Morgan said. Bellevue Mayor Rusty Hike pushed back after an Omaha World Herald story on the report, saying the Sarpy County community should not be denied the benefits of the gambling facility. Hike said in a statement released by Bellevue City Hall that the proposed Bellevue Downs would help pull revenues from Iowa casinos into, into Nebraska coffers and fit well with an entertainment district that would also include a proposed city water park. As a Nebraska-Iowa border community, Bellevue provides a unique opportunity to pull revenue from southwest Iowa, including Mills, Page, and Montgomery counties and more. Northwest Missouri, Cass County, Nebraska, and Sarby County, which has a population of over 200,000, Hike said in a written statement, Bellevue and Sarpy County should not be denied the benefits of hosting a facility. The nonpareil did not receive a response to an emailed question about why Pottawatomie County wasn't listed by the mayor, but the release notes that City and Bellevue Downs officials believe the Bellevue Racetrack Casino would greatly improve Nebraska's ability to pull revenues from neighboring states, specifically Council Bluffs. Hike contends in his statement that the gambling facility would likely generate more revenue than the consultant estimated and would help maximize tax revenue for the state, city, and county. 
He called the report's figures an extremely conservative estimate. Bellevue officials said that other market studies estimate the revenue of between $102 and $112 million. The report from the Innovation Group estimates the Bellevue proposal would debt $60.7 million in revenue, with $38.5 million coming at the expense of the other Nebraska gambling facilities. The Warhorse Casino, under construction in Omaha, stands to lose $24.7 million if the Bellevue facility is allowed. The recent report from finding some negative impact on existing license holders for the other proposals, except for moving the facility from Hastings to Agalula, but that Bellevue location has the largest impact on existing license holders. Opening the Bellevue Casino would draw in $2.1 million from Southwest Iowa gamblers in 2026, according to the report, with an estimated total market capture rate of 15.4%. The proposal would bring in $43.9 million from Omaha gamblers. John Hassett, the Kino operator who applied to license the proposed Bellevue Racetrack and Casino, said the Bellevue Downs would increase overall state revenues and his track would race quarter horses, so it wouldn't compete with thoroughbred tracks, such as, such as Horseman's Park. As Blinken visits region, Israel issues warning. Hezbollah struck an air traffic control base in northern Israel, the Israel military said Sunday, and warned of another war with the Iran-backed militant group. The increasing in fighting across the border with Lebanon as Israel battles Hamas militants in Gaza gave new urgency to U.S. diplomatic efforts as Secretary of State Antony Blinken prepared to visit Israel on his latest Mideast tour. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering. Blinken told reporters after talks in Qatar, a key mediator. mediator. The escalation of cross-border fighting between Israel and Hezbollah has complicated a U.S. push to prevent a regional conflict. The Israel military said Hezbollah fire hit the sensitive air traffic control base on Mount Meron on Saturday but air defenses were not affected because backup systems were in place. It said that no soldiers were hurt and all damage will be repaired. Hezbollah described its rocket barrage as an initial initial response to the killing of a top Hamas leader in Beirut last week. The Israel Military Chief of Staff, Lieutenant Colonel Herzi Halavay, said military pressure on Hezbollah, a Hamas, Hamas ally was rising, and it would either be effective or we'll get into another war. I suggest that Hezbollah learn what Hamas has already learned in recent months. No terrorist is immune, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told his cabinet. Airlines again ground Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets. Alaska Airlines and United Airlines grounded all of their Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliners again on Sunday while they waited to be told how to inspect the planes. 
to prevent another in-flight blowout like the one that damaged an Alaska jet. Alaska Airlines had returned 18 of its 65 737 MAX 9 aircraft to service Saturday, less than 24 hours after part of the fuselage on another plane blew out three miles above Oregon. But the airline said Sunday it received a notice from the Federal Aviation Administration that more work might be needed on those 18 planes. Alaska said that it had canceled 170 flights, more than one-fifth of its schedule by mid-afternoon on the West Coast because of the groundings. These aircraft have now also been pulled from service until details about possible additional maintenance work are confirmed with the FAA, an airline said in a statement. Russian shelling attacks target city of Kyrgyzstan. The southern Ukrainian city of Kyrgyzstan was subjected subjected Sunday to numerous shelling attacks from Russian-occupied parts of the Kyrgyzstan region across the Dnieper River, local officials said. The head of the Kyrgyzstan city administration, Roman Makrokio, said two people died in the shelling attacks and several others were wounded. In Ukraine's northeast Kharkov region, a man was killed and two other civilians wounded in Russian shelling of the Kupansk district Sunday, according to the Kharkov Regional Prosecutor's Office. Now we have a little sports here. Got the playoffs coming up, and the NFL playoff picture is complete, with Tampa Bay and Green Bay claiming the final two NFC slots while Jacksonville played its way out of what seemed like a sure thing a month ago. The Buccaneers won the NFC South with a 9-0 victory over the hapless Carolina Panthers in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Packers took the last playoff spot available with a 17-9 victory over the Chicago Bears, eliminating both the New Orleans Saints and Seattle Seahawks. The Jaguars will miss the playoffs entirely. Their fate was sealed with a 28-20 loss in Nashville to the Tennessee Titans, which handed the Houston Texans the AFC South title. Jacksonville's victory also guaranteed Buffalo and Pittsburgh would make the playoffs as wild cards. Buffalo went a step further and won the AFC East, beating Miami on, on Sunday night to claim the number two seed. Some other scores from Sunday's afternoon and evening games. The Titans 28, Jaguars 20. Buccaneers 9, Panthers 0, Green Bay 17, Chicago Bears 9, New York Giants 27, Philadelphia Eagles 10, Seattle Seahawks 21, Atlanta Cardinals 20, Kansas City Chiefs 13, San Diego Chargers 12, New York Jets, 17. New England Patriots, 3. Cincinnati Bengals, 31. Cleveland Browns, 14. Some uh, kind of Iowa news. Sam Laporta's knee injury, not good news for Lions. Lions rookie tight end Sam Laporta limped off the field after appearing to hurt his knee against Minnesota on Sunday and was later taken toward the locker room on a cart. 
It's not as bad as it looked, but it's not good news, Lions coach Dan Campbell said after his team closed the regular season with a 30-20 to win over the Minnesota Vikings. We'll know more Monday. I know it looked awful. The Lions secured the number three seed in the NFC by winning the division title for the first time in three decades. They needed Dallas to lose later Sunday at Washington to move into the number two spot, but the Cowboys didn't cooperate, breezing past the last place commanders 38-10. to Detroit will host the Los Angeles Rams and former Lions quarterback Matthew Stafford in the wild card round of the playoffs next weekend. You're either all in or all out, Campbell said. LaPorsche's left leg was bent in an awkward way after he caught a pass and was tackled late in the first half. LaPorsche had 86 catches, an NFL record by a rookie tight end. Here are some things to watch on Monday, January 8th. Uh, we got the College Football Playoff National Championship tonight on ESPN. Starts at 6.30 p.m. live. Uh, battle for the National Championship at NRG Stadium in Houston as number one Michigan going up against number two Washington. Uh, we've got America's Got Talent Fantasy League. NBC at 7 p.m. The qualifying rounds enter their second week. One act is given a golden buzzer and earns a spot in the finals with the audience voting five acts through to the semifinals. Oh, it looks like we've got the season premiere of Antiques Roadshow on PBS tonight at 7 p.m. Season 28 kicks off with the first of three hours at the Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage. Roadshow's first visit to Alaska. For treasures that include a 1969 Rolex Oyster Cosmograph, an English bass bass violin, and Susan Butcher's 1990 Iditarod Trophy, which Anchorage find is worth between fifty and $100,000. We got a new series from... Uh, looks like Paramount called Halo Showtime 7 p.m. tonight uh, it's based on the popular video game in 2552 humans on the planet Madrigal fight for independence from Earth but a fatal encounter with the alien covenant complicates things uh, we have a season premiere of uh, 90 Day Diaries on TLC. Kim feels like she is getting out of her post-breakup rut. Ari and Benny have an unexpected roommate in their new Las Vegas home. Emily and Kobe update us on their life while still living in her parents' house. Finally, Patrick and Taze take on their delivery journey. Uh, we have the new series on AXS TV, 9 p.m. Cash Cab Music. This trivia series with a new format created exclusively for AXS TV gives unsuspecting passengers the chance to win cash prizes for answering questions uh, spanning the rich history of music. Here's some movies that are showing today. On TNT at 4.30 p.m., we have Silence of the Lambs. Uh, 
On the Hallmark Channel at 5 p.m., we have My Favorite Wedding. It's a 2017 romance comedy. AMC at 5 p.m., we got Rambo First Blood Part 2. Sylvester Stallone. Uh, Hallmark Week 7 p.m., we have A Royal Winter. This is from 2017, a drama. And then uh, on Pop at 7 p.m., we have The Firm. This is a Tom Cruise film. Oh, here's one I missed. Catch a classic. A Star is Born. This is from 1937. You noticed uh, we've also had another uh, remake of A Star is Born just recently. But there is just something about the tale of A Star is Born. An older, fading star of movies or music helps a younger up-and-comer reach the big time that audiences in the Motion Picture Academy have found so compelling that the story has been retold in four film adaptations, and each version has been nominated for at least one Oscar, with three of them winning at least one statuette. This 1937 production of A Star is Born was the first telling of the story, the Best Picture Oscar nominee star, Best Actress Oscar nominee Janet Gaynor, and Best Actor nominee Frederick March. It won a Best Writing Original Story Oscar and received an honorary award for its color photography. There seems to be an interesting story. Back to the drawing board. Research suggests doodling may spark creative juices at work. The current business environment can be intense, making the need for creativity crucial to achieve new solutions and original ideas. However, how do you activate people's creativity at work? This will sound far-fetched, but follow the science here. According to a study by Drexel University, art-making activities such as drawing, coloring, or doodling can activate the reward pathways in the brain, which is known to boost mental health and creativity. Researchers used functional near-infrared spectroscopy technology to measure blood flow related to rewards in areas of the brain while participants completed various art-making projects. The activities included coloring in a mandala, doodling within or around a circle marked on a paper, or having a free drawing session each for three minutes with rest periods in between. During all three activities, there was an increase in blood flow in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which forms part of the wiring in our brain's reward circuit. This shows that there might be inherent pleasure in doing art activities independent of the end result, the study's lead author the advantage of creating art beyond just the pleasure of the activity itself. According to surveys before and after the art-making activities, participants who engaged in art-making felt more creative and were better able to solve problems. These findings have important implications and highlight inherent benefits of art in promoting creativity, focus, productivity, and well-being. But there's one clear winner in all this art making. Doodling gives you more benefits. Between drawing, coloring, and doodling, the latter takes the cake. When you're facing a challenging project or problem at work and feel stuck, 
the solution may be to start doodling. Doodling is a simple and accessible activity that can help you tap into your creative side and generate new ideas. In doodling, your mind is free to wander and you can explore different thoughts and possibilities. The art of doodling also has a calming effect which can help reduce stress and anxiety, making it an excellent tool for improving your overall well-being, which also will make you more productive. Doodling, the research suggests, can evoke positive emotions and should be considered a therapeutic tool for everyone, regardless of the skill level. After all, we're talking doodling here, a judgment-free activity. That brings us to the end of the reading of the Council Bless Nonpareil. I'm your reader, John McPartland. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for Poland.